Okay, welcome to the Who's Your Mob podcast. And finally I got around to having a chat with Tim Kanoa. He's a bit of a man about community and has been doing a lot of great work for the Aboriginal community of Victoria for quite a while now. I first got to know him doing some photography for him uh, travelling around the state taking some photos of some of the young Aboriginal mob to be a part of the Koori Youth Council branding. It was one of his last projects before he finished up there and went on to some other work, continuing on trying to help our community in difficult places. But also what we talk about for the most part is his traditional dancing that he does, I guess now with the Fighting Good Digimara dance troupe, as well as his photography, which we get to talk a little bit about later in the podcast. So there's a lot to this man, and we cover a lot of ground. Yeah, it was a good yarn, just kind of kicking back in the afternoon sun, and I hope you enjoy our little chat too. Here he is, Tim Kanoa. My mob is... Um, here in Victoria, the Keravmara clan of the Gunishmara Nation, um, which is essentially Lake Conda, Hayward area of southwest Victoria. Um, and my family line is the Lovets, essentially. My grandmother on my grandmother's side. Uh, but then on my grandfather's side, I'm of Kanoa Rotoma, and that connection is West Arnhem Land. And as far as I understand it, it's Bunichiwaja in the West Arnhem Land, Mount Borrowdale. Yeah, right. And then how do you, how do you come to live down in Gunditjmara country as opposed to being living up there? Well, I was born and raised in Gunditjmara country. It's all I know. Yeah. And it's only just recently um, I've been comfortable in identifying as someone from West well, connected to West Arnhem Land. Mm. Um, so, born and raised in Portland, Victoria, have had the opportunity to be able to connect to my community, both culturally, um, but I guess just generally in the community sense. And also growing up, I was able to access places like Lake Conda and our culturally significant sites to really you know, embed a kind of deep sense of who I am as a Karamara person from the Gunditjmara Nation. Mm. And yeah, have you been up in your you know, other family's country, West Arnhem Land, and made connections there? I haven't been to West Arnhem Land. I haven't been to the areas we traditionally are connected to, but I've been to Kakadu, Jabiru, where my grandfather was living, mm. and a lot of my cousins now live there, and then my dad's brothers and sisters also live there. So I've been there, I know family, but I don't know enough culturally um, about my place up there, so there's still a whole lot to learn on mm. that part of me culturally. Yeah. And how does West Arnhem Land mob connect with Gunditjmara mob? Like, what, where was that? Uh... Well, my grandfather came down from the Northern Territory. Okay. And I think it was there that he played fo- he played football for Port Ferry. Okay. And then he met my grandmother, um, and they had, you know kids down here which you know are known as the southern Rotomus. Um so between you know Pop and Nan I think there was about five or six off the top of my head 
um, of my dad's brothers and sisters who were born and raised here, but essentially are very much connected to um, the Rodman mob and yep. the mob up in, in um, Arnhem Land too. And the Rodman name is famous, I guess, well, to me through Uncle Peter Rodimer, yeah. the singer-songwriter. Yeah. So what's he relation to you? Uncle Peter Rodimer is my dad's brother, so he's my oh, uncle. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, as I said, Uncle Peter Rodimer, Uncle Tony, Uncle Larry, Auntie Leah, Auntie Delcy, um, they've all primarily been raised in Victoria. Um, so yeah, I guess down here Rodimer is known through um, Uncle Peter and others as, I guess essentially the mob know us as being Victorian, but mm. really Rodimer and Kanoa comes from the Northern Territory. Yeah, mm. yeah, it's interesting, I guess, how... Down here we're Lovitz. Yeah. That's our direct yeah, connection. Right. Yep. And then you're now living out in uh, what, Pakenham Upper? Pakenham Upper, yeah. Yeah, so, uh, and then what before that, like in the net, in the Dandenongs and... Well, before that, I was, like I said, I was born and raised in Portland. So I lived in Portland up until about, I was, maybe I was 19, 20, can't recall. Um, but when I moved to Melbourne, I moved to Preston for three years. I think I hated every moment of my time there okay probably because i come from such an environment that it was it didn't it was so it felt so enclosed living in preston um but really i moved out to cockatoo or the dandenong ranges um, with my wife because the opportunity come up to live out there with my wife and her family-in-law and ever since i've just enjoyed it and feel a lot more connected to it then I could possibly be connected to Preston or Melbourne in mm. suburban Melbourne for some reason. Yeah. Well, what brought you to Melbourne in the first place? Uh, my wife. Following my wife, I didn't have a job when I moved to Melbourne. And really, um, at that point in time, I actually thought my life, work and my job would be to dance in an Aboriginal dance group. Mm -hmm. um, and when we got here, we did a fair bit of work we did a fair bit of dancing. We had a, a dance group which we called ourselves Murndoba Murntung, which is Thunder and Lightning. And that consists of me and my cousin and two other, three other brother boys um, um, from here in Melbourne. So it was a bit of a connection of two mobs coming together and ultimately our passion was to dance and that's, that's what brought it together. It didn't work out in the way in which we wanted it to work where we were engaging in dance and culture as a full-time job. Um, so from there, I ended up working at the Koori Heritage Trust and okay. doing a fair bit of work in terms of really maintaining the oral history tradition of our mobs through the oral history unit at the Koori Heritage Trust. So that was good, that was fun. Yeah. Same time, we were still able to, we had a good arrangement where we could dance and work at the same time. Yeah, nice. Mm. And did this dance troupe start up in Portland or did it just get started? Well, did, well were you dancing in Portland before yeah. you came here? So I've been dancing in Hayward in Portland since probably 10. Okay. Under many different guises. The first being the Windermara Aboriginal Dance Group. Um, and that group was really started from my cousin Shay Rodama, but he's, I love it also. 
and he, he was the one who really instilled you know the importance of us connecting to our culture through dance and song and dance um, but we used to do these um, annual parades at the Woodbine and Haywood Woodbine and Roses Festival where we put the Windermara parade in and essentially we would paint up and walk through the parade you know as culturally sound as we possibly could and then we'd come up with a couple of dances and we perform that in front of the audience that was there so that's where it started mm. um, but over time you know my cousin me and another cousin of mine Jason Walker uh, and our older cousin Shay Rodimer had taken us with Wayne Thorpe to Adelaide to participate in what they called a living culture festival I don't know if you ever heard of Major Sumner or Moogie, Uncle Moogie, the Talcum Jerry dance group. Um, it's the first kind of experience I had with all these different clans or tribes coming together and performing and showcasing their culture and their cultural existence in the one spot. And from there, I was about 15 years old. That's where I really, you know, my passion had got a lot stronger for wanting to engage in culture through dance and song and dance, really. Mm. Um, but you know we'd always been the Windermara dancers up until a point and then I left Melbourne and we came here and um, we formed that first group as I mentioned earlier before yeah and so what outlets would the dance troupe have for performance or cultural practice so so performance wise Generally, we perform when we're, you know, booked for a gig, essentially. Um, but culturally, I guess, or ceremony-wise, it's the outlets we have really is on country is to be able to get together and sit down and um, really talk through, I guess, what it means in terms of our cultural identity individually, and then what it means in terms of our cultural identity collectively. And then how is it that we're going to promote that or how do we promote it to the world uh, and what are the tools that we use to, to promote that to the world. But, you know, we were lucky. We had a centralised point in Hayward where it was a winter marriage from a co-op and that was our central point where we'd come and congregate and yarn and talk about many different things. And not all the time it was about culture, but, you know, just having that centralised point meant that we worked together as a community um, and then other things would evolve whether it be culture, football or all these other things that we do as brothers and sisters. Mm. And what is Windermara and what does that word mean? Uh, I couldn't tell you. <laughs> I wouldn't want to say it. Yeah. I don't know because I just don't know the absolute truth behind it. Yeah. So I don't know. I should know. Yeah. But, but I guess you do know enough language to be writing songs. Yeah. yeah. We do know enough language. and. I guess our language is, you know, like, especially here in Victoria, language is, has been disrupted, I guess. In some instances, it's been lost. Um, and the language that we know of is the language that we can only pull from books or dictionaries um, that are currently in existence. So, you know, there is language that we know the meaning of because we've read it and there's a translation. But there's not language that has been, in my experience, passed down from generation to generation to generation. 
I guess that stems from the fact of colonisation and the processes that we've been through. Um, and, you know, in some instances, our elders, our aunties and uncles were told that they could never talk their language or they shouldn't talk their language, otherwise they'd be punished because of it. So, you know, we do know our language and some words and some meanings, but we don't know it to the extent that we would want to know it. Mm. Then what is the process that you have to go through to, uh, to, to write a song? Do you have an idea of a, a particular topic and then it's, do you just translate it word by word or do you have to kind of come about it in a different sort of structure? Yeah. It all depends. Um, for me, um, my individual process is to think about a story you want to tell really um, and then with that you try and identify what is the available language that you've got and whether or not that language there's enough of it for you to be able to piece together a song and a melody that is you know um, intricate enough you know to be a song or a melody if that makes sense mm. um, because a lot of the, the language or the way the songs that we have is very looped, like it's a loop process. It's nothing that we can use sentences, you know, to piece together a song. Um, so nine times out of 10, every, every song and, that I've written or come up with has always been a one, two, three, four, five words in continuous loop. Yep. Um, and that's simply because we don't have enough language or enough understanding how to use and talk our language in, you know, expression of song and dance. But back to the question, I guess, um, if some of the, well, one of the songs I've, I've written is the Brolga song. And Brolgas are very are prevalent in our area, um, down Lake Condor and surrounds. And the way I went through that process was to understand one, you know, when you see brogas, how many brogas do you see? And generally you see them in one, two, three or fours. You rarely see a broga on its own. Um, and you see it in, in all these different places. So I was able to come up with this song and see that, well, firstly, I knew the language for broga, which is kurong. I knew, um, I also knew language for places, which is punumbit, yaruk, um, and all these other areas around the places. And these are the places where I would see the kurong or the broga. And then I also knew, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six in language. So essentially, that's how I kind of drew the story together is saying I'll see, well, one or two or three kurong at Narawang or one or two or three kurong at Pulumbit. And then ultimately the song would just come together. So, you know, when you think about it, it's kurong kundum pulumbit yaruk wangat balung pinabobokara kakari wangarimara. And that's the kind of. Um, where you'd see the broga and then you'd also that's the first part of the song and then the next part of the song was how many brogas you see in those places you know mm. so that changes the melody and the sounds and the feeling of the song yeah. and also changes the way in which you dance and mimic the animal or the bird and kaka wangarimara means come listen march or come listen here um, so it brings it together and it's a cue for the for the dancers to be able to go and rep, you know mimic the song, but also bring us back to a unified kind of group 
when yeah. we dance. And how did you know to come about this this structure and, and this way of writing? I don't I don't know how I come about it. And some of these things I always assumed younger that I would it'll just be I'd be taught. You know, there's some of our dances that I've been taught. I never imagined me coming up with um, a song or a dance. Um, but I ultimately I come to the conclusion that when it feels right it has to be right you know if you feel like there's enough spiritual engagement there's enough you know you're feeling your ancestors in the songs in the dance and culturally it seems okay then I that's when I feel like it's kind of the right way to go about Mm. it in the absence of the ceremony and the stories and the tradition being passed down Yep. I mean, we've had to take ownership over who we are as Karamara people. And we did that by gathering the knowledge that we've got and creating it, recreating it to what we know is right for us as Karamara people in the 21st century. Mm. One thing we've been clear about is that we'll never get back to the way in which it was prior to colonisation. It's, it's impossible. I think we've accepted part of that even though as hard as it sounds we've accepted it but it's now about making sure we take ownership of who we are in the 21st century and 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 making it real for us in the 21st century yeah are there any uh or there many other gundijmara dance troops out there doing similar stuff um yeah i think so there's been many groups so the mob up in Warnable Way have always had a dance group. You know, Jamie Thomas has been had been involved in driving some of that back when we were kids. Um, but that's probably yeah one of the only groups I can think of. But there's many Gunishmara people who are in other dance groups in Melbourne. You know, mm. um, which is simply because where people are placed, I guess. Um, they want to be able to connect culturally and you know, some will say well there's good like we did when I first moved to Melbourne you know we were Gunishmara people fresh out of Gunishmara country and we still wanted to engage in culture and song and dance and you know the best way to do that was to find like-minded people and get together and come up with what we might be comfortable with promoting in terms of our our own identity in a kind of sound culturally mm. safe way I guess well, how is it being a Gundinjara fellow performing on Wurundjeri and Bunwaran country? Uh, does that, uh, are there certain protocols that you have to go through? Yeah, absolutely. But do I know what they are? Probably not. Am I sound enough on it? Probably not. I guess the thing for us is we're very clear that when we're engaged as the Fighting Gundinjara Aboriginal Dance Group, that we're here to promote the existence of the fighting Gunjimara and our identity as Karamara people from the Gunjimara nation. Um, and anybody who engages us, we're very clear that they need to understand that we're not here to represent the traditional owners of this country. Mm-hmm. We're here to represent who we are as Karamara people and that they need to inform the right people for country that they're engaging us um, in their event um, and if, if they haven't done that, then we will make the decision not to engage. Um, so we haven't had any, you know, as I understand it, we haven't had any criticism or pushback or issue 
with us dancing with Kiramara people on other people's country, but it'd be good to understand what that process is so that we could be a bit more sound in our decision behind why we would dance. But like I said, we're very clear that when we're engaged to dance, it's because we're here to represent us as Kiramara people. Yeah. But then I guess you would have crossed paths with Annie Diane, Annie Carolyn. Uh, Many times. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, is there a, a discussion or anything about, um, I guess, practicing language and, and culture on their country? Well, we haven't had a discussion as such. Because like you say, the times we've crossed, well, when we have crossed paths, is either being at an event where Arnie Dye or Arnie Carolyn would welcome the country. Yeah. But, you know, we'd say very much, we're here, we respect, we honour you. Um, and it's certainly, uh, it probably is worthwhile sitting down and have that conversation, but we would, you know, we would expect if we were doing the wrong thing that we would be engaged in a certain dialogue to say that we are. Mm. Um, and also sitting down and have those conversations, the right conversations about it. Yeah, and you guys have been doing it for a while now. How long the uh, Fighting Gunjimara been dancing for? Fighting Gunjimara dance group has been around probably since 2012, maybe oh, 13. Yeah. Not long, in the sense of it being the Fighting Gunjimara, mm. um, but we we engaged the fighting with Jamara because we had spent a lot of us had spent a lot of time off country um, a lot of us wanted to get back to dance and we wanted to get back to dancing with us primarily as Karamara people of the Gunjimara nation mm. uh, and we spent a whole year going through a lot of you know processes discussions about you know forming the dance group and the entity. And we were coming up with ideas around, okay, if we're gonna start a new dance group, what would be the appropriate name for us, you know? And generally, like anything, we land in, in Aboriginal language names or Dorit Warong language names, which is our language. Um, and we really, we kind of thought to ourselves, oh, it, it's important that we do have a language name, but at the same time, it's important that we really promote who we are as mm. Karamara people or people from the Gunjimara nation and then the fighting Gunjimara came to us quite naturally because um, one the name the fighting Gunjimara derives from our ancestors of resistance against the colonizers and you know their um, resistance to I guess resist the colonizers and unsettles the settlers. Um, and it also comes from the fact that, you know, well, Gunjimara people in particular, our great grandfathers had fought in all the world wars and they had come back and again termed the fighting Gunjimara. Mm -hmm. um, and when we thought about it, well, we think oh, we're the fighting Gunjimara today, but what does that actually mean? And in our case, we come to an agreement that it meant we are fighting the influences of the world and those things that push us further and further away from our culture. It's a philosophical fight to a degree, and, but it's, it's a real fight because, you know, when you walk around in Melbourne or wherever we are living, um, we are further and further away from our cultural existence and that's what our fight is today. And we wanted to also make sure that, you know, when we are up on our, when we're up performing, because there's the difference between performing and 
ceremony and cultural, um, we wanted to make sure that every time we did, we represented the care of Murrah as best as we possibly could. And you know, we wanted to see our young people and others in our community connect to that and then for them to kind of follow the path with us as well. Yep. And then there was a little bit of backlash from some people uh, using the name Fighting Gunjujimara. Oh yeah, I mean, because that fought, the term for the Fighting Gunjujimara is a very prominent term. Um, you know, and some people, an uncle of mine, ours, he said to us, you know, what do you fellas know about fighting in the world wars, you know? And you couldn't possibly understand what it meant to be in the world wars and you couldn't possibly understand what it meant to fight in uh, or resist, you know, the colonizers when they were here. So, you know, the point being it was don't use the term lightly and honor its existence, you know. Don't use the fighting Ujamara lightly, which we were very clear on. We're not using it lightly. Uh, we did we do need um, for people to understand that the fight is still here. But you know, again, what is that fight in the 21st century? Mm. But you know, like I say, we take ownership of who we are as Keramara people and what we do, and we're responsible for our actions, uh, and we take ownership over that. And again, a dialogue and a conversation with the right people in the community, and the endorsement of our community is always important too. Yeah. And do you get to uh, get back to country and perform there? on a regular well, we, basis? Not on a regular basis, so we don't get back to country enough. And that's, you know, one of the, this is my own personal view, that's what I'd like to see more of. Um, and it's, it's, you know, we need to ensure that we have a, a stronger processes, stronger commitment, um, and that we all get there and, you know, things should happen naturally and organically at the same time. We need to get there for a purpose um, and really that's gathering strength from the land and our cultural significant sites and the spirit of our ancestors and really I, my personal belief you can, you can better find that when you are on country all of that inspiration and the spirit mm. and what's some other subject matter that you guys dance about and sing about so we will sing about um, welcome dance essentially which is what we call it and the welcome dance is really um, depending where we are it's about making sure that one our ancestors know that we're here and the space is safe for us to be there um, but generally genuinely saying hello and genuinely saying hello to the mob that we're performing in front of Natamwa um, is obviously hello, and Gunjimara Kondam and Krona is say hello from the Kiramara people of Lake Konda, essentially. Um, but it's also stomping the ground as hard as we possibly can to, you know, help our ancestors find us. Because, um, like we were talking about, it's not, um, we're not always on our country. So we need to make sure that our ancestors are there and they're behind us and they're with us. Mm. Then we also have, like I said, the Brolga dance um, and, you know, kind of just the typical, I guess, dances that would mimic or portray an animal or the existence of the animal, but also the existence of its spirit. Um, and then you know, we're now focusing on 
um, while we when and one of our other dances is also about you know who we are individually so we focus on what our um, individual kind of skin totems are and we you know we talk about Kapring being the emu, Nagiangaro, the wedge-tailed eagle, um, Katalang, lyrebird, Bera, which is wallaby and Koyang, eel, Yukuch, crimson rosella, um, and then Willan, which is you know our moiety or our totems. And again, going back to that, this is another song that I kind of have been working with the group about, as you know. How is it that we identify culturally, individually, and collectively, and bring that into you know, a dance or a performance, essentially? Mm. Um, but we are also in the process of doing a lot of research, and the research is about our stories and our dreaming stories and creation stories, and then um, how do we bring that? You know, how do we promote that and portray that in a through song and dance that we've got available to us today? Yeah, so where do you find this information from? It's either from literature reviews, from anthropologists who have done literature reviews or journals or stories that have been passed down. Um, yeah, primarily that's where we get it from. Yep. Um, sometimes it's good to, like we, you know, the stories that you hear from an uncle or an auntie as a child and you think about it a fair bit and then when you get older you start thinking where can I actually find more information on that so you kind of research and mm. you know our research only goes so far um, but you know there's nothing stopping you from taking that story and turning it into something today because it is real to you as it is to any you know it is as real to you yeah yeah as it could be to anybody else I guess I can't articulate myself right but yeah yeah so I've seen a few different dance troupes around the place performing at festivals and openings and that kind of stuff. Um, and it seems like a lot of the stories are going back to traditional ways and, you know, just about totems and... Yeah. Um, I, I wonder though, is it possible or would there be a reason why people don't perform stories about contemporary life and uh, in regards to yeah, I guess you know this day and age then you know, a lot of us mob are playing playing football or or you know might be working nine to five jobs and that is that um, have you seen that around or is that a possibility or is there a reason why you don't see too much of that I don't know I couldn't talk on behalf of other groups but I think I mean, yeah, I don't know, like, for me, I think it's important to understand what it means to be an Aboriginal person in the 21st century and, you know, how you express that is important, it's critically important and some people might do it through, I mean, some people might express their identity playing football, some people might express it through music, photography, song and dance, and many different ways, creatively or otherwise. Um, but I feel like we're just not I don't know if it's about I feel like we need to be comfortable that you know here in this day and age we should be able to you know pick up 
our stories and our song lines and you know what's relevant and put that into a song and dance without feeling that it's no less culturally significant than what it was prior to colonization um, but I just don't know if we're there I feel like we have to you know for the and this might be a society issue we have to promote for the purpose of our existence that we are still connected to our culture because that you know traditionally because that's the way broader society typically sees us as black aboriginal people mm. um, and if you're not if you're there presenting a song and dance that is about the tram going down nicholson street how could that be any you know, how can that be seen as Aboriginal culture, really? Uh, but I guess I have a debate often, but I've had you know, a particular debate that I remember um, with an archaeologist around you know, um, Aboriginal people going out into the forest and creating or building a canoe you know, in the 21st century. And I said to the archaeologist who knew about it, um, how are you going to protect that tree? And the archaeologist said, what do you mean, protect it? I said, well, it's a scarred tree now. You should protect it because essentially it's like any other scarred tree. An Aboriginal person has scarred it. They've used to a degree techniques that they've been taught, but it's a scarred tree in the 21st century. And the straight up response was, well, no, we wouldn't protect it because it's contemporary. And I said, well, in my view, it's hard to, how do you, how is it contemporary versus traditional? Uh, like in the 21st century and really since colonization or even before, our culture always evolved. It was never static. I mean, it is considered as the longest living culture in the world. And with that, it means when you evolve, you have the tools and um, you have tools and, you know, technologies and all these other things that are now available to us to promote who we are engage in our culture in, the, in that way so yeah I don't know it's a bit of a long-winded answer no 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 it's fascinating yeah no it does raise you know questions of that um, yeah traditional and contemporary because you know I guess we, you, you guys are here in the 21st century performing song and dance um, and yeah it is contemporary in a sense but at the same time it's obviously using traditional elements and you know as opposed to say you know like someone writing a song about the brolga mm. with uh you know telling the same story but with the guitar mm. which i guess then you know the, the other side of things of um of uh, do you see uh, any obstacle in being able, to, being able to bring some of those stories into contemporary music well no I don't think so, mm. but this is me. Yeah. Um, so, for example, if mm. um, if there was a song that you do for the finding uh, fighting Gundjamara, yeah, and then that was then used with other uh, other instruments, and then you know became something else. So it became, you know, say a, a, a song like a, in in a band structure. Yeah. Uh, would there be uh, barriers to that happening or 
would that be a positive or a negative thing for the I think the culture? the number one barrier really is about to the permission to be able to use the language and the song and dance. Um, and I think that's pretty consistent, I guess, anywhere you go in the country. Um, but yeah, I mean, ultimately, I would see it as a positive thing that there is an infusion or fusion of both contemporary way of doing music, traditional connecting in with it. So, mm. you know, in my view, there's there's no real barriers, but it's my only view. Yeah, yeah. And how is it when you're performing, uh, I guess, especially on country? Do you find that there are young people wanting to learn and participate and is there opportunity for them to? Yeah, absolutely. We have been a bit tight on our process though in terms of young people dancing with the Finding Winter Mark. Um, and that's a conscious decision. But that doesn't mean that the door's not open. I think young people do want to dance with us as do those who are older or the same age um, but before they do that we want to engage with them in a certain dialogue and a certain process um, because like I said when we implemented the fighting with Jamara it was about making sure that we are promoting our identity as Karamara people to the world um, and when we do that we want to do it to the best of our ability every single time that's mm what we owe to our ancestors is what we owe to our community um, so yeah we certainly have young people we want young people to engage we see them wanting to dance with us but and others but we want to go through a, a good process which we think is sound um, so those people can engage but, mm. and something that I've wondered about I've had a you know, couple of chances to paint up and maybe not being able to do that that often, probably haven't had as much time to think about what I do with the paint uh, my body, what I represent. Uh, like, is there anything in particular that you guys represent or know what to or how to paint yourselves? Mm -hmm. We, so, we use imageries, we use photos of old, the old people to paint up. So the design you see with us as the Fighting English Murray is a, of a certain image that we've got um, from Portland, Portland Way. And we probably can't tell you categorically what it means, but we're using it to the best of our ability um, to connect to our old people. Um, so we wouldn't understand exactly what the dots mean or you know, we certainly know the nose red represents the bone that should be through our nose and that's why we paint that um, but no we wouldn't tell you we couldn't tell you definitely what the paint means but we're using the imagery of those old people yeah sweet um, but before we made that decision um, we used to paint you know in a design that our dance group design itself which was you know the Lake Conda fish traps and then the eels swimming into Lake Conda fish traps yeah so cool. we designed that ourselves and it felt right um, but to be honest in my personal experience is that 
um, it feels much it feels more right painting the way we paint now with the, the design of those old people yeah. and that's just a personal personal reflection yeah and does everyone in the dance troupe uh, have some role in the in the singing or the the writing or yeah, how does that work? Yeah, well, we all have a we all have a role in it. I think, um, like I say, we come up with a concept. Um, we will throw words around, and you know, again, in the twenty first century, we now have the ability to come up with that concept, record the songs. Um, record some of the movements and the dance, give it to everybody in the group, wherever they are in the country. Um, and they come up with some more ideas and we either um, have an in-depth conversation via email or um, over Messenger or Facebook conversation, even text messaging around dancing and just continue to throw ideas in and in and in. And then um, once we get together, we've kind of, we've got all of that there and then we really workshop, you know, what the dance will, the final product, I guess, the dance will be and the songs will be too. Um, and we have some real good debates about, you know, how a movement should be, how a movement shouldn't be, you know, it's either, and we can also have spaces where I'm the one out, you know, and in the end, the majority rules. And that's the kind of, that's the process that we've got. If the majority of, um, are for it, then we go it that way. Um, and Paul, bad luck, Tim. Your idea won't get through because the group agrees on a certain way. So, um, but it's fluid too. Like we don't, you know, once the dance is there, we don't. We try not to always just think that's it. Uh, it depends where we are. We might reconfigure a dance or think about something else to throw in. Um, Sometimes we, we could do that 20 minutes before we actually get on and do a show. Other times we really think it through and, you know, what, what the movements will actually mean and how it will look and those kinds of things too. Mm. Do you enjoy performing at certain places over others? Uh, I don't know. I think what I... You, you generally take a lot of it from the audience. Like performing in front of an audience is, you know, a, a good thing. I mean, obviously, being home and dancing on country is the best. And when you do that just with your brothers, there's no better feeling than that. You know, you're in there culturally, and you're just immersed in it. And, you know, you don't even realise that you are engaged in culture. But when you're in front of an audience, it depends. Like, there are times where, you know, the Rainbow Serpent Festival, for example, that's uh, quite an immersive experience. Um, you have 8,000 people who, in my view, or I feel that they are kind of engaged and immersed in your culture and they're there fully engaged in it. Uh, and it's completely different contrast to sitting in or performing, you know, at the top of one of these high rises in a corporate event, and everybody's wearing a suit. You know, so it's it just depends, I guess. When um, 
I guess it depends on yeah you, you kind of take your energy from the, the audience but at the same time like I mentioned before regardless where we are who we're dancing for we try and bring the same kind of power and the same kind of performance mm. um, because like I say it's about our ancestors and promoting that yeah well I guess speaking of suits um, I guess you're <laughs> you're here with the well I guess the suits over there on the Yes. Our suit jacket is on the other chair there, but um, kind of kicking back with the tie and the, the microphone attached to it. Yep. Um, yeah, I'm just wondering how how that balance is because this is you know very different to you painted up and uh, you know with the boomerangs in hand. Yep. Yeah. How do you navigate those two worlds? Um, I'm very clear that any profession that I'm in that my culture is a, a priority for me um, and if I'm going to work here and engage you as an employee then you need to understand that um, and there are certain obligations that I've got culturally and otherwise that I need to that I need to be responsible for um, dancing is one of them um, but there's not enough you know in um, so I'm very clear on that, but I don't think there's an, I don't think there is a balance at this point in time. I think I'm more in the Western world than what I am in the Karamara cultural world, um, and that's really I think comes down to the individual um, and whatever the individual is comfortable with and feels comfortable with you know because there's an expectation that um, culturally you got to be down country you got to do many different things to be perhaps to put it bluntly seen as a black fella and then on the other side of it you've got to be present you've got to be here you've got to you know engage in the workplace you've got to engage in the kind of general society contributing member of society um, I guess to, I guess feel accepted, but really, it comes down to the personal, you know, how you feel personally. You know. But like I said, I don't think I do enough of it, and I want to do more of it. Um, you know, and back to my very early days, I would, I would have rather, I would rather now even, be doing culture and engaging culture as a profession. Um, but I guess my job is such that I had the ability to engage with community and, and cultures anyway and articulating that to the work is probably a good balance too I don't know and then how do you even manage to book gigs and be able to get time off work yeah, yeah. so how far do you have to book ahead and, well, and my what's that process I'm lucky, we're lucky that we, you know, certain members of the group have a particular role and one of the boys, his job is to do all the bookings, you know. Um, all of us are in full-time jobs, you know, and they are full-time, high-pressured jobs too. Um, but, you know, when we, 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 we're well organised, like we, we never commit if there's less than four in the group 
and when we do commit then we're committed so some groups you know might say we need you to dance next week we put it out to the group and if we can't get four then we don't do it um, but when we do get it we you know, we're either taking our own time from work or some of us might have arrangements with our workplace to say look so i'm going to dance it's going to take two hours out of my day um, but i'll work back and you know that's about a personal kind of arrangement that you need to have with your workplace mm. at the same time any workplace needs to understand what it, they need to be in terms of being known as a culturally safe space you know, for any cultures but pro you know primarily in this context for aboriginal people like i mentioned before i have cultural obligation uh, responsibility and I'm very clear with my workplace what that means and I'm lucky a lot of my workplaces have all been supportive of me connecting to my identity culturally and otherwise. Mm. And what is your current occupation? Uh, yeah, who do you work for here? I work for the Department of Environment, Land, Water and Planning and I'm the Director of Aboriginal Inclusion Support. So we're here to implement what we call Mungan and Gadaba, which is Tundurong language for Achieve Together, which is the department's Aboriginal inclusion framework. Mm. And what does that mean exactly? So the work, the Mungan and Gadaba is the Aboriginal inclusion framework. In that framework, there's three high level outcomes we want to achieve for the community. Recognition and respect, opportunity and prosperity and participation and collaboration. My job is to ensure that this department has what it needs to implement Mungan and Gadaba in the best possible way it possibly can. And that means the infrastructure we might need internally, the relationships and the partnerships we need with the community, um, and the monitoring and the evaluation and the operations that we need to drive and measure the outcomes of Mungan and Gadaba. Mm. Um, it's a newly established branch that I'm responsible for, the Aboriginal Inclusion Support Branch. It's been... So I get to build the team, I get to um, start with a bit of a clean slate. Um, and ultimately, my view is to work directly with traditional owner groups and Aboriginal Victorians as, and for them to guide and support how we implement what this department needs to achieve those outcomes. Mm. Yeah, I, I guess going on what is quite a hot topic at the moment um, up in northwestern New South Wales, how you have a lot of the uh, a lot of the local mobs there quite angry at the use of the the water and, and the land management with all the you know cotton farms and. And the rivers have, you know, all dried up, and I guess can't can't be used for um, you know swimming, let alone drinking water these days. Uh, do you get similar issues down in Victoria in regards to uh, overuse of resources? Um, I, I can't answer that. I don't think um, primarily because I'm not fully aware. Mm. I think part of our work is to help bring in what cultural values and Aboriginal values might be, um, what ecological knowledge there is 
traditional knowledge theories um, and bring it to some sort of um, estuary um, with westernized practice and westernized science. Mm. Uh, so yeah, that's what the job is essentially. Um, and to find that really happy medium of a really good balance of, of both those kind of connections between Western and East uh, Aboriginal mm. knowledge. And well, it's with anything. It's, there's a lot of debate about what is scientifically proven and what isn't. Um, um, but I'm not sure whether or not it's about you know, overuse of water or not, I'm, I don't have enough knowledge. Yeah. So, uh, eel traps still used down Gunditjmara country? Not in the traditional, not in the sense that it was prior to colonisation, but the mob are um, certainly working towards that. Absolutely, and you know, it's being supported by state government and uh, it should be supported by departments like this. I mean, ultimately, our goal in the Aboriginal Cultural Support Branch is to um, understand what the aspirations are of Tishliner groups and how they want to use land and water and resources um, and to support that, essentially. Mm. Mm. And before here, you were at the Department of Justice, yeah? Yes, I was at Department of Justice. Um, I was the manager of Nalamba Gambu Niralingam Yilam in Corrections Victoria and that was Tanurong language which it's not a direct translation but it was in essence the Aboriginal Cultural Integrity and Resilience Unit mm. in Corrections. Alright so I guess within the jails there are like, I guess Aboriginal specific um, Aborig Aboriginal specific treatment or um, yeah what, what happens? Yeah. So the work that I was doing and leading was um, under the Aboriginal Justice Agreement and there's six objectives in that agreement. Um, the third one was to reduce re-offending and that was primarily, if you look at the justice continuum, you got, you know, you want to do as much as you can to prevent anybody coming into the system. If they step into the system, you want to do as much as you can to divert them away. If they get deeper in the system, that's the kind of reducing reoffending, and you know they've they've gone to jail or they're on a community corrections order. Then you've also got you know building the community's capacity to be able to help respond to some of these big issues that bring blackfellas into the system. So my work was primarily focused in the in the correction system, where we're looking at what might be appropriate programs and policies and initiatives that would overall reduce over-representation of Aboriginal people in the justice system. Um, so, you know, we were bringing culture as the key thing, protective factor, and using that. Um, and at the same time, making sure that we are doing as much as we can to have Aboriginal people meaningfully engage in what we call the offender management pathway. You know, so being received into the system and all the way through, what are the what are the touch points or the interfaces between mainstream and Aboriginal way of doing business? Um, or what is the nuance that you might need to understand, but what is the kind of cultural overlay we need for everything, you know, 
that an Aboriginal person might deal with when they come into the system. Mm. Um, so we're looking at policy and initiative and program development. One of the things we did in there was develop a, a grant round process called Kaka Wangari Wangamari, which has come listen here. And essentially under that banner was we engage Aboriginal organisations to deliver Aboriginal cultural programs in the, in the correctional system, primarily in the, in the prisons. Yeah. Mm. And how exactly does culture uh, assist with Aboriginal people, um, at least avoiding the justice system? It's hard to measure that, really. I think if I think about it, from a personal experience, I'll share with you and everyone else who's listening, but before the age of 21, I was in contact with the justice system probably five to six times. And you can even look at that before the age of 18. And there are a number of times in which I was either going down a certain track or, you know, I ended up going the other way. And the reason I know that I went the other way is because I was connected to who I was as a Karamara person culturally that's my own personal experience but the other thing is that through a lot of you know we always identify culture as being the number one protective factor because we think if people are strong in their identity they're strong in their community they're connected to their community and that should um, you know either prevent or help people remain connected and on track if they're in the justice system you know mm same time there were spaces like the Koori courts um, where we were able to make you know main, very main, mainstream centric dominant culture centric spaces we were able to use culture and cultural process to help it be more safe culturally safe and you know engaging for Aboriginal people you know I'd probably rather sit down in front of my elders in a court than just the judge alone, you know, or I'd, I'd probably rather um, my community come in and run a prison, a program for me in prison than a mainstream prison. Um, so it really it's about making sure that community and culture is somewhat embedded to, to those processes. Mm. And yeah, I, I find it, um, I, I guess, amazing for a, a man at your age to, I guess, be uh, you know, such a strong uh, community leader. Like, I guess the first time we uh, probably met and worked together was uh, when you were working for the Koori Youth Council. Mm. Uh, you were heading that up, and then uh, you went on to leadership roles in the Department of Justice, and, and here now. Um, yeah, is there anything that you could put your finger on that has given you that drive and incentive to be? Uh, um, I guess a leader in community and uh, you're working in in these you know, important roles. I've put it to put my finger on. I'm very clear on this. I've put my finger on my life experience, um, and I don't know what's a typical black fella experience. I'm not really sure, but my experience has been pretty. Um, 
My experience hasn't been an easy one in childhood and growing up. Um, but I always knew that I wanted to strive for, at least for myself, to be what I wanted to be. But then, um, there was a time at school where I failed year 11. And I failed and I dropped out of school. And for that point in time, I thought, you know, then and there, I thought I was, it was, I was deadly because I dropped out of school and I didn't have to go to school. But what I ultimately discovered was that I was the only one who wasn't at school. And all of my mates and my cousins and all that were at school and I was out there in my community thinking it was going to be fun, but it wasn't. And there was a time that my, a teacher of mine rang me up and said, you know, what are you doing, Tim? You know, you're not at school. And I just said to him, well, I, I actually don't know what I'm doing. And then he said to me, well, I'll tell you what you're doing. You're going to get back and you're going to repeat year 11. And I think from there, that's what drove me, I think, because I had a little experience of what I didn't want my life to be. And at the same time, um, a person showed me enough that they cared and it was a simple phone call to say, listen, this is what you're going to do. Gave me no other way out. But I've got to put a lot, of, a lot of it, you know, in terms of my drive, it's also a lot of it's got to be put down to my relationship with my wife and the support that I've got from her and from my family as well. Um, But with my experience as a kid, adolescent, and everything like that, and for me to achieve what I've achieved in my life, I guess that it all, that's also something that drives me to be able to show to people that, you know, if you actually put your mind to it and not maintain the status quo and don't be a sheep, you know, the analogy of sheep following one another, you can do whatever you, you want to do. Many people now, I reckon, see me in the suit, and that's it. They probably just associate with me as a, somebody who wears a suit every day, is a city slicker, and that's it. Beyond that, there's nothing more. But as you mentioned earlier, there is more to me than just the suit. It's the culture. It's who I am as a Kiramara person. It's where I come from. You know, living and growing up in Portland and Hayward. That's always going to be who I am, and I never forget that. And everywhere I go, and especially when I have now the ability to make key decisions for community, it's always in my mind, you know. Mm. And I guess the overarching driver for me is to get the best possible outcomes we can for our people, regardless of what job I'm in. Young people, old people, cultural. It's always been about the best opportunities or the best outcomes for our mob. Yeah. And so, yeah, what is going to be the best outcome for our mob going forward? What's, um, yeah, what's the, uh, the uh, future for our uh, Aboriginal people? I think it's a good future. It's a strong future. Um, 
but it's one that you know back to that balance story it's one that we are connected to who we are as Aboriginal people um, but it's also one that we are succeeding and we're happy and we're healthy but it's us determining what that happy and healthy is it's not imposed on us and we have control of our affairs both as community and individually and we can make our decisions comfortably um, and not have to justify that. Mm. So speaking of happy and healthy, um, I hope you don't mind me asking because um, yeah I, I just uh, learnt uh, the other day just talking to you that so you don't drink alcohol mm. and I know it seems seems strange to you know be asking it like it's something a little bit unusual but I yeah. guess in, in the culture of you know mainstream culture or you know just um, in, in the Aboriginal community like in so, so many communities it's such a it's such a big thing yeah. but then uh, yeah I wonder how how if at all that has shaped your life Absolutely. I mean, I I grew up. I was one of the best mate. I was the best man to party with. You know, we have a charge, and I'll be the last one. Well, one of the last ones standing. You know. Um. But there was a point, probably six years ago, where um. I woke up a little bit hungover. And I just said to myself, I really didn't want to feel this way, you know, anymore. And ultimately, it was my own fault for feeling that way. Um, but I always, there was something in me that I always wanted to be a person who doesn't drink. And that's just me personally. But there was also about, it's also, part of it is also about being a bit of an example, perhaps a role model, I don't know. Um, but also being true to who I am and like I said trying to achieve my own goals both yeah. trying to achieve my own goals in terms of being happy and healthy um, so there was a time where I decided I'm just going to stop drinking for six months and I did and then six months turned into a year and then a year turned into two years and then it went to five years um, and there, but you know, probably after four years, I started describing myself as a teetotaler, non-drinker. But I guess that was probably probably a little bit too early because it was five years. One year's eve, I decided that I would have a drink, you know. But ultimately, that drink just meant a few drinks and just to enjoy and socialise. It didn't mean get on it and get charged up and be cooked the next day. Um, I guess essentially, I think for me what it's helped me identify is my relationship with alcohol and whether or not I need it or don't need it. And I mean, it's pretty clear to me I don't. And um, it, it's also helped me find who I was. It's not, I'm not, promoting myself to be someone who was a drinker, drinker, drinker. 
but you know, certain social gatherings or experiences, generally there's always, you know, a drink that brings us together or something along those lines. So I've been able to go to these spaces and other spaces where, you know, I can engage in a dialogue, I can engage in a conversation, I can have a dance, I can, you know, at the Rainbow Seven Festival, not this year, but the year before, you can get up there and boogie without the need of alcohol. Um, and the next day I wake up completely okay. I might be a little bit tired, but you know, I'm happy. Like I'm super stoked when I wake up. Uh, maybe it's just me trying to rub some salt in the people who are hung over, rub some salt in there with, but I'm just, you know, I enjoy getting up on Saturdays and Sundays and any other day feeling clarity in my mind and enjoying my cup of coffee and reading the paper or whatever. I just enjoy that way of life now. I think though, part of it is that because I did have a lot of time drinking as a young person until I was 27, I think, when I decided I wasn't going to drink anymore. I'd had enough. And yeah, back to health and happiness, I think that does help me be, I guess, a lot healthier, that's for sure. I mean, I've, I think I've dropped a lot of weight because I don't drink, and I've, but that's also associated with vegetarianism. But I know my, my clarity of mind is, I, I just love having clarity of mind. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I had, um, you know, like a month here and there not drinking. And yeah, you go to a, a pub and that, and then you um, drink my soda water and that. And pretty much every time the, the, the question comes up, you know, why, you know, or why not having a beer? You know, what is it about, you know, this month that you're not drinking? And um, well, I'm you know, vegetarian as well. I, I you know, definitely get asked, I, I got asked about the drinking much more than you know, uh, you know, why don't you eat meat? But yeah, you know, get, get asked that as well. Yeah. So, yeah, how do you how do you find that? Do you do those questions get a bit annoying, or is that a, a chance for you to then explain yourself and you know hopefully inspire other people? Or yeah, I don't think we had to start when I said I wasn't going to drink. There was a lot of pressure, but that's because someone like me and who I was there's this a complete kind of stop to that you know and people might have assumed oh this is just a phase and they've given him a month and we'll be back at it again I think over time you know six months a year people realize that he's actually quite serious about this and you know there were times where I just removed myself I wouldn't go because I knew the pressure would just be you know, perhaps too great and I'd buckle or yeah you do get annoyed that you know, when you are serious about something you want to focus on it and you want to do it um, you do get annoyed with questions but my cousins and all my mob now they don't there's no pressure like that anymore they actually congratulate you and they say well done you know all those things and if I explain it to someone you haven't seen for a long time and so I haven't seen somebody for seven years and they catch up and we start telling them I don't drink anymore or I don't drink much or at all really. Um, they'll kind of start asking what happened and some people who I don't know might say, oh, did, you know, was there a certain reason? Was it a drinking problem? All those kind of things. I said, no, 
really it's just what I wanted to be, it's who I wanted to be, it's what I wanted to do. Um, yeah, I don't know, it doesn't get in, I don't get annoyed anymore. Mm. And really, in a, I do notice though, when you, like you say, when you're out for a drink and you're with people who you've just met and you're sitting there having a soda water or lemon lime and bitters or something like that, yeah, I do notice how they look at your drink to see whether or not, you know. And in my mind, I think this person wants to ask you not having a beer or something, but they they don't want to, you know. I don't know, it's a tough one, but mm. yeah. And then what about being a vegetarian? What, vegetarian? Yeah, so <laughs> oh, what, yeah, why don't you eat meat? I don't eat meat for uh, environmental reasons. Um, I read a book by John Safran Foer, um, and said, you know, there's a there's a high level of impact on our environment simply by eating a piece of beef or even having a a prawn on your plate. You know, there's a lot of um, devastation to the environment because of that, and that's one reason. And well, that the main reason really um, cruelty to animals and all of that is part of it but primarily for me it's the sustainability of it mm. um, and when I did say I'm not going to eat meat well I first start off saying if I'm going to eat meat then I'm going to I'm going to grow it grow it catch it myself mm. um, but I didn't you know I live in the city there's not enough opportunity for me to do that yeah not even enough opportunity for me to go fishing or anything like that so yeah it ended up being um, I turned into becoming a full vegetarian primarily when I read that book it was about sustainable practice but then making a decision on whether or not you should be vegetarian yeah well, what's it called again eating animals eating animals John Safran Foer okay and you talk about powerful pieces of, of literature um you know, they, they said a Bible is a powerful, the, probably the most powerful piece of literature, but this book was pretty powerful. It changed my life, mm. you know, for the better, really. Yeah. Yeah, I, I know, I call myself a vegetarian, although I've, I've got, got like little out clauses, like, um, and yeah, for, for the same reason, you know, for environmental and um, animal cruelty. Uh, I'm thinking, like, because I was raised at Carnival pretty much, and, yeah. and so I miss all, all of these meats. And so my, my little out clause is, um, uh, and it's just recently, just to kind of make make it a little bit more sustainable for me to kind of stay more or less vegetarian. Yeah, is that maybe every now and then I could eat a little bit of kangaroo. Mm. So yeah, I'm just. Um, yeah, maybe I need to investigate it a little bit more, but I kind of figure that, I don't know, maybe at least they're not, well, they're, you know, they're kind of a bit more free range than the old, you know, cow and the... Well, free range, but the, uh, kangaroos were made for this environment. Mm. They were made for Australia. Cows and sheep and others weren't. Mm. Um, buffalo, you know all of that, they devastate the environment, essentially. Mm. So kangaroo is probably, you know, a better way to go. 
but I don't know. I just I don't know if I if I can eat meat again. To tell you the truth, like there t there are sometimes when you know when you accidentally bite into a piece of meat. Have you ever had that experience? Like someone says oh, it's vegetarian or all oh, right, you yeah. know, they give you um, what uh, something happened. I, I can't remember what it was, but I bit into it. And, the texture and everything like that I just I don't know I didn't like it yeah yeah um, and my wife's of the same like my wife wouldn't eat meat now because of you know the texture and I mm. guess the taste and, yeah but I don't know I have similar cravings like, there's certainly cravings like, there are times in which I would like to eat seafood or you know, something kangaroo kangaroo is one of the main on our menu every week before we became vegetarian mm. Um, but I'm too far down the road. Yeah, fair enough. You know, not to eat meat to eat meat again. I think. So you don't get into the, like the mock meats. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I'm big on it. Okay, yeah, I'm big on the mock meats. I eat a lot of that soy kind of product where or corn. Corn's probably one of the best products. You know, you can have the even on the weekend and we cooked up a dish pasta like a spaghetti bolognese but you use like this mushroom base it's textured like meat yeah yeah and i fed it we gave it to one of my mates who was over and, and he was sitting there munching away and, and he goes oh minna didn't have to make me any meat she didn't have to do that yeah. and i said she didn't <laughs> you know what do you mean i said that's not meat it's like a mushroom base but it's textured yeah, like meat. Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. that's what we use you know mm. yeah i'm big on lord of the fries <laughs> I took, I took my cousins to Lord of the Fries once and I didn't tell them it was all vegetarian. Mm. And um, I only got caught out the other day, actually. And I said to these boys, because they were up from Hague, and I said, let's go and get Lord of the Fries, mate. Best burgers in town. Yeah. <laughs> and we went there and all much away going, yeah, this is deadly, mate. This is the best food I've yeah. <laughs> I didn't tell them at all it wasn't meat. And then uh, we went to it with another cousin of mine. He was at the same group. and. <laughs> he was sitting there like he got like the chicken palmy or something and I was sitting there eating and he was like sitting there eating and he's like looking at looking at it really weird yeah. and I knew he was, like something was clicking in his mind what was going on he was like this doesn't taste right and he kept eating it kept yeah. eating <laughs> I just cracked up laughing he goes what are you laughing at I go bros what do you think's wrong with it he goes it just doesn't taste right it's too dry I just don't know what it is I said that's because it's vegetarian and what you're eating there is not even meat. <laughs> <laughs> and he just, his whole face dropped and he goes, ah, well, it tastes all right. Yeah. But, you know, it's like, you go to Lord of the Fries. I don't go there often. But on a, you know, takeaway night, you might. You go there and they say to you, I just want you to know, you know, they'll say, they've got to tell you it's not meat, mm. you know, because obviously so many people go there. And I really think if people just allow themselves to enjoy it, they they probably would enjoy it. You know, vegetarianism is... I'd drop at least 20 kilos from not drinking alcohol and vegetarianism. Mm. That's not even with physical exercise. It's just... Yeah. Just drop the weight because of healthy eating, I guess. Yeah. I'm not as healthy as I should be or could be, but I know... Te vegetarianism has got me to a point where I'm quite comfortable and happy in my skin. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's something that I find 
quite interesting how, you know, I guess you know, the, the way that, um, I guess, blackfellas identify themselves with contemporary, you know, urban Aboriginal culture, mm. then it's pretty much like, you know, KFC and, and Devon is our traditional <laughs> food. <laughs> Devon. <laughs> Three ways. Yeah. So, um, but then there's also, you know, for Aboriginal people, acknowledging the fact that, you know, a lot of our land has been taken away by, mm. by all, all, all this farming. And, That's right. And, you know, I guess they were the first ones to kind of, like, head up into land and, and kind of, um, I don't know, where they're, like, you know, killing our people or getting them off the land to, you know, for, for the cows and all exactly. of that. Um, but, yeah, I don't see that many Aboriginal vegetarians around. It's, uh, yeah, is is there, a, um, you know, I'm just trying to, yeah, wondering if it's, if there's a way to, um, or if it's even, like, worth kind of promoting that idea to, to mob. You're spot on, James, I think. That would be my initial response, but you don't want to get too political, you know, or pressure people to thinking a certain way. Mm. But that's always in the mind is, you know, the land essentially that is used to graze the cattle and the sheep is Aboriginal land. And a lot of, and that's what it was, you know, colonisation was to take over that space and use it because ultimately we were, there was the view that this place was terra nullius and it wasn't used in the way it should be used. But um, We do need to consider that, you know, in, in when we think about what we do, um, I guess we do need to consider our decisions and how it either supports or goes against what, I don't know. Yeah. It might have, yeah. I don't know. Well, how, how do you go about it? And well, how how did you go about it when you were working at the Korea Youth Council? And um, you know, I guess when you're looking to implement programs, uh, you know, through justice and through the Department of uh, Land, Water, <laughs> uh, Environment, uh, yeah, Environment, well, Land, Water, and Planning. Yeah. Yep. As to you know, how can you get your ideas across and be able to in, inspire and um, improve the lives of our mob without being too preachy. Yeah. What, what what is a um, yeah? What, what techniques do you use? Well, understanding I guess what I think it's about engaging the dialogue and having the conversation and discussion, um, and that's easier said than done. For me, it, especially at the Koori Youth Council, we had a membership base and um, we also we did a lot of travelling around the state to sit down and talk directly with young people on what it means to them um, to be a young Aboriginal person in the 21st century and what they need in terms of promoting that, but then ultimately what they need to achieve their life aspirations and goals. Um, and, but then primarily it's about, you know, understanding that. For an example, the Koori Youth Council, it's understanding 
the voice or the voice of your constituents or who you're there to represent and then articulate that to ultimately where you should be articulating that to and at that point in time it was into government policy and to Aboriginal community. Um, but I guess the articulation has to, there really can be no room for interpretation. That's what I'm learning very much here in the traditional owner business, but back then it, the Koori Youth Council was about making sure we are articulating the needs that we hear directly from the mobs, the young people, and then providing them the platforms and the spaces and the opportunity to, to put forward their voice in their own narrative. Um, in the prisons, we, we went into the prisons and we sat down with the mobs and we listened Similar, we went into communities and we sat down with them and we listened and we heard. And then, you know, our, ro our key role was to again articulate that and develop what would meet the needs of the mobs in the prisons. And then here, we're, at, we're, we're starting a little bit from scratch. So I'm about to engage in an extensive consultation process from, what are we now, February? probably to the end of well, to June and that'll be traveling the state and sitting down directly with each one of the formally or legally recognized Trishliner groups but then also Trishliner groups that we know of that aren't formally or legally recognized um, and understanding you know what are the distinctive aspirations of the groups respectively but what are the consistent themes that come up through our conversation our discussions um, that we can kind of work with here with DELP and DELP's leadership and then I guess more broadly with the state government's approach to working with Shoshana people. Um, so yeah, we continually, we just, you know, it's always about dialogue and conversation and discussion and through partnerships articulating what that is, means mm. for the groups we seek to work for. Yeah, cool. Mm. And before I let you go, I've got to ask about your photography. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so um, it's amazing work, like your landscapes and, and your portraits and mm. that. Um, yeah, what are you, um, yeah, what, what are you looking to achieve with your photography? Um, is it, um, yeah, uh, is it a, a hobby that you, it just have on the side or I know you're looking to to improve and then hopefully um, yeah just continue to get better through throughout your life and mm. exhibitions or what, what are your plans I don't know I don't know I pick I've always liked film and the moving image and that's where I started is film and the moving image but then um, all of a sudden I got this need and want to take photos. Um, I guess now I can safely say it's just, it's more a hobby than anything else. But I find it's something that takes me away from my day-to-day -day life, if that makes sense. It takes me away from, you know, what I do in the job and gives me something to focus on, but really, I've noticed through photography and having the camera in my hand, it, it helps me connect to a certain place. You know, if I'm capturing the image of 
the landscape or the environment that I'm I'm really enjoying just being at that place and connected to it mm. and then being able to capture the essence of what I'm seeing and what I'm feeling that's what I that's what I thoroughly like about photography my wife you know she'll come with me sometimes or we go to the beach or somewhere and next minute I've got the camera out and I'm there for maybe two hours getting the essence of that shot yeah and she's sitting over there reading a book or trying to hurry me along so you know like I said that's what I really enjoy about it but same time photography gets you you know you kind of meet people and it gives me comfortability to be able to go up to a stranger and say you know for example I met this dude who had this really old school camera I said mate that looks like a good contraption and next minute I've met this new friend who travels the world and takes photos in Patagonia and does all these amazing things with photography and you know it's, it's like a relationship a new relationship that I've got with somebody who I never would probably have a relationship with hadn't I been into photography myself mm. but I would I want to enhance myself um, I want to enhance my skills and my understanding of photography and using it as a medium to tell stories I'm not there yet I mean there's so many people like yourself James who can go to an event or a space and just capture the essence of that you know you can tell the story I'd like to get there you know but I'm not I feel like documentary photography and that kind of photography is that's where I want to get to because I think that's for me that's the skillful photography Whereas landscape, you can capture it. You've got time to sit there and engage with it. Whereas documentary photography or street photography, you, you don't have a lot of time to get all the elements together and just go bang and capture it. You know, that's where I want to get to. But in the exhibition, I don't, you know, I mean, I've done one or two, I just don't see. That's, that's not what drives me. It's more about me just picking that camera up and spending a lot of good time with myself and the camera and the land. and promoting what I see but also I've got some ideas and concepts but I don't and they're focused around culture and cultural portraits but I don't I don't see me wanting to put on a massive exhibition for it and sometimes people ask that question you know what do you want to do and why take so many photos when you don't do anything with them but it's just really personal kind of yeah but it's still great to see when you post some online yeah and they get some attention yeah that's a good thing but you know, sometimes what gets attention is different to what you think should get attention in terms of a photo, mm. you know? Oh, but I do, I post it on Instagram, um, primarily on Instagram. Um, and you do, I do, um, I do want people to see it and enjoy the photo or the image that I've created. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I do love it though, mm. photography. Yeah. It's great. And yeah, so what's your Instagram so people know? The Instagram is at the real nomad underscore. <laughs> so at the real nomad and then just an underscore on that. That's yeah, it, you yeah. should see it. It's just at the real nomad. You should find it. Oh, I'll chuck a link on the mm. on the pod here.
Cool. That's it. Yeah, and yeah, is there, I don't know, is there any advice for me and perhaps anyone else like me who's looking to, I guess, be able to you know bring some bring some culture into the contemporary landscape? Gee, no pressure, no pressure. At, um, yeah, I don't know, man. Like I think. I mean, I think you just got to keep doing what you're doing. It's a hard question, eh? Mm. I don't know. Culture into the contemporary landscape. Yeah. Well, like personally, I'm I'm finding um, uh, finding it fascinating with the with a lot of the traditional music that I'm hearing, and and then some of the stories that. I'm getting to know from, you know, whether, you know, dream time stories or your particular stories about a certain place. Uh, yeah. And, um, yeah, even my own connection with, with family and with our family lines, that, that common history, uh, trying to bring that in. Mm. Um, just, um, where I find it quite hard is trying to work out how it can be be authentic um, but then then not necessarily be yeah I guess breaking any protocols and and, and stepping on on people's toes mm. and um, I guess you know Ab- Aboriginal um, Aboriginal people particularly in the southeast can uh, be quite sensitive in regards to the use of, of culture in in different contexts and such um yeah have you have you come across anything that i should be should be aware of i think you got to be responsible for yourself maybe i don't know like with you i'm just unwarranted advice you've got a lot of talent you know creatively um I guess the best place to start is with who you are and what you are as your own cultural identity. And you know, nobody can take control of that. You know what I mean? Nobody can tell you who you are as connected to your mob or connected to your culture that you're doing the right or wrong thing. And for you as an individual, only you can take ownership of that. I guess the, the the blurred line is where we might be using other people's stories and other people's language and other people's cultures and that's the blurred line that we might have and the sensitivities that we might face and the barriers mm-hmm. but you can get through that when you sit down and have a dialogue with those people who are the holders of the stories and the song lines or the practice and you seek the permission to be able to you know engage it into contemporary landscape Um, it's always really about discussion and dialogue and conversation that's the best advice I can give you